What's up everyone and welcome to episode 128 of the Just an Insight podcast, a show where we talk to people involved in the world of alternative music and find out what makes them tick. Um, hope everyone's well, everyone's kind of getting ready for winter apparently over here in the UK, the weather's turned pretty grim, why the fuck am I talking about the weather? Nobody wants to hear me talking about the weather, but yeah, anyway, just want to say hey at the top of the show as I always do. Um been a quite a productive week for for myself done a few bits and bobs getting wheels and motions with future episodes and and other stuff regarding the show and its future plans um but also went and saw uh cult dreams uh formerly known as kamikaze girls in southampton on wednesday which was pretty rad uh and then friday went and saw mortality rate in london and it was definitely worth seeing in london traffic for an hour nearly wanting to piss myself to see that band they yeah they were really fucking cool um so yeah i'm back on the back on the gig wagon after what felt like a lifetime since i went and saw lip and Prist, but it really wasn't that long ago but yeah back with a vengeance and hopefully going to another two this week uh one in brighton maybe and potentially touche amore in bristol which we'll wait and see what happens but also the final final pieces of the puzzle uh, of the Divorcee record, which is my band, if new listeners uh, on this uh, episode uh, are kind of coming to a closure. Uh, basically, I'm doing vocals this weekend, which I'm shitting myself a little bit, but also really excited um, to finally get things done and dusted and out into the world. So we'll be posting all about that once it's all done, mixed and mastered. But yeah, busy weekend ahead, which I'm I'm looking forward to. Um, speaking of gigs we've got a little bit of news for the first time in a little while I've kind of been reluctant not reluctant lazy I guess is a better word of saying it on hunting down news but we've got a couple of things sort of coming in uh, just off the bat today which is Monday the day I'm recording so the download festival headline has been announced for 2020 um, they are Kiss Iron Maiden and System of a Down not a whole lot of surprise to be honest I th- in our review episode of Download this year, don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed Download, especially um, Slipknot, but I was kind of hoping that 2020 would be the year that they finally kind of bucked the trend and took a gamble on someone, but alas, it's not to be. Even like the the lower bands, it's cool to see Korn, Deftones, Gojira on the lineup, but yeah, just... Just the headliners is all the same. It's just boring. I don't want to see Kiss. I don't want to see Iron Maiden. Like, System, yeah, I, I will get into. But I think the rest I'll probably just go and sleep. But if that's if I do go, and people have downloaded if you're listening, I'd love to come back. Um, but yeah, so that's the first little bit of news. Also, probably by the time this has gone out, uh, Slam Dunk Festival will have announced their first lot of bands as well, which I'm quite excited to see considering how vast a mix that was last year. Um, Also, in slightly other news, uh, Candy have uh, signed to Relapse Records. Now, Candy were one of our bands in 2018, so it's cool to see their back recording stuff already. But yeah, uh, no longer on Triple B Records, now signed with Relapse. Uh, They've released two songs on a single, which is called Superstar, um, and you can go listen to it on all various streaming platforms but yeah really excited to hear more new stuff from candy um 
on the topic of new music, we once again have an exclusive track to share with you, which I'm very, very honoured to to be able to say. Uh, this week we are bringing you a track from Massachusetts crossover band High Command. Uh, the track is called The Commander's Code, so have a listen and enjoy.
that was the Commander's Code uh, from High Command, taken from their uh, debut album, Beyond the Wall of Desolation, uh, which comes out on Southern Lord Records this Friday. So, yeah, really super exclusive considering the record comes out on Friday. Uh, I've been privileged enough to hear the whole thing, and it fucking shreds. If the Commander's Code was anything to go by, trust me, you are in for a treat uh, with the rest of the record if you like that track. Um... But yeah, should we should we get into our guests? I've been rambling on too long, uh, and this one was a fucking delight. And I'm not even mincing that. Like, yeah, this week I am joined by uniform vocalist Michael Burden. Um, yeah, it's just one of the most open and candid interviews that I've ever done. And I, I even I think I mentioned it at the end uh, that I was just honoured that Michael felt so comfortable and. Open, like comfortable enough to talk to me and open and honestly as he was um, we discuss him kind of growing up in the MTV generation growing up in the Philadelphia scene and what sort of that kind of was like and how that kind of moulded him uh, his troubles with substance abuse uh, and so so much more that me babbling on about it is just not going to do it justice so please just sit back enjoy the chat I have with Michael and I'll see you on the other side. Cool. Right. Joining me this week on the Justin Insight podcast is vocalist of Uniform, Michael Burden. Michael, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to have a little chat with me. Um, obviously, just come off the back of a, a European tour. So how how was that for you? How was that experience? Uh, thanks for having me. Um... Yeah, this European run was fantastic. Um, we've toured Europe a number of times. Last time was over a year ago, and uh, it was after Roadburn. Right. A little, a little more quiet because I think a lot of bands were touring right about then. Yeah, yeah. This time, um, you know, our uh, our morale was a lot higher, and the, the shows were wonderful. We. Um, you know, we were met with kindness pretty much everywhere we were. There was—I can't say that there was a, a really bad show. That's um, good, <laughs> which is which is unheard of. You know, uh, <laughs> I think there was something like twenty-five shows, and uh, usually, I'd say out of twenty-five shows, there would be you know ten that were not not the best, and five that were probably horrible. But, yeah, <laughs> you know, no, no, nothing like that there. So I'm really grateful. Um, any particular highlights on on the run? Oh my gosh! Um, yeah, both both Sweden shows, Stockholm and Malmo, were quite wonderful, and that came as a surprise because last time we played Stockholm, we played in a restaurant that, um, like you know, people were having dinner. <laughs> we were playing. Um, we were playing as a two piece at the time, uh, but it was still you know quite caustic. So that, that was different. Um, you know, this time around, we played at a proper club. Uh, we played with uh, uh, this uh, techno artist, uh, Oliver Ho, who I respect greatly. And uh, it was just a wonderful time. At Malmo, we played at Plan B Collective. And, you know, it, it was wonderful. Those guys have a fantastic... Uh, fantastic ethos that they uh that they live by and uh it's great to be a part of that mm. other other than that um strangely enough uh 
the, some of the festivals were really wonderful. Yeah. We, we usually have a horrible time at, at fests. You know, you get pushed in and pushed out. Um, and, you know, like, like you never really make a connection with anyone. But we played uh, Devilstone in Lithuania. And, you know, the crowd was great. Uh, but more importantly, our host uh, was this... Um, this young woman who'd never hosted a band before and she she knew everything about all of us oh wow yeah she um she was like i I wouldn't say she was like helicopter parenting but she was like she knew everything about us and she knew where we are at where we were at all times (laughs) like was just like i felt like very very emotionally and very emotionally taken care of. Yeah, you know, yeah. I didn't have to worry about anything. And then, oddly enough, we played this festival in Czech called Colors of Ostrava. Okay. Um, which I, I knew nothing about, but um, some friends uh, in uh, this band called Algiers uh, played a number of years ago, and they uh, they warned me that it was good. You know, it would be it would be good, and they're more like kind of pop oriented bands and this seemed to be like a pop festival right and like for instance like the headliners were Florence and the Machine and oh okay the Cure, you know like and uh, you know as wild as it is to say that I played the same festival as the Cure I don't <laughs> yeah. necessarily think that that's going to translate to people liking us um, so we figured that we would set up and everybody would just walk away but you know we played to a a few thousand people and wow. they were all, all very responsive um, and uh, you know we uh, we tried leaving the stage and uh, we, like nobody was moving um, so we, we went back for an encore and we would never done an encore before um, and we didn't know any more songs we were playing with uh, a hired gun drummer yeah. friend Blaze from the band Bambara was filling in and so I just, I just spontaneously said like, play hybrid moments because like you know who, who doesn't know hybrid moments, and so we did and it went very well. That's cool. Uh, That's cool. <laughs> so there was that, and then the same thing happened in London, and the same thing happened in Paris, um, which is just remarkable because London's always a hit or miss city with us. Yeah, we have a lot of friends there, but you know it. It's not always the best time, and um, you know we were out with uh, dad reading from around that area, and uh, you know it, it was wonderful to spend time with them. The crowd was great, um, and then we've never had a good Paris show before. Never, it's always been fucking awful. <laughs> um, like we're playing to like five people who just hate us, um, and this time around, like that wasn't the case. Uh, it was fantastic show almost sold out on the hottest day of the year like um it you know the, the response was great yeah uh, that then obviously fluff fest you know um fluff fest uh, you know we we ran into the body there yeah um, who are uh, some of our closest friends and we just you know getting to connect with them before we played kind of you know I feel like helped us hit the reset button and uh, you know playing there was 
it, it was tremendous. You know, I, I, I felt more like more at ease and more kind of a, a part of an organism with what was going on. Yeah. Um, in the festival uh, than I had the rest of the tour. It was that was our last show. It was such a wonderful way to uh, to end it. So. Mm. You know, uh, it, it's hard to narrow down highlights. It was, it was, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was pretty fucking great. Yeah. No, that's I've been up. that's cool. Well, obviously, like I, I had the opportunity to see you guys at, at Fluff, and like I'm not just saying this to kind of stroke your ego at all, but like you were hands down like one of my favorite bands of the weekends. Like I kind of so um, you played with a friend of mine uh, in Bristol. His band was Cruelty. And he, oh, yeah. um, so he'd kind of already said like, uniform are going to be wild. I was sort of like, okay, yeah, cool. Like I'm into the band anyway. Uh, so I was looking forward to it anyway, but yeah, just the live experience just was like something I wasn't expecting at all. And it just completely blew me away. So kudos to, to the three of you, I guess. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. It, 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 it means a lot. Um, we, there were tremendous bands playing and it's just, I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm glad that people didn't entirely hate us, let alone, <laughs> let alone liked us a little bit. You know, it's a privilege to get to play music for for people, yeah. um, and it, it's even more so that uh, you know uh, that it responded positively. Yeah. So thank you. No, no, no. It's absolutely my pleasure. Well, if we get into to the chat proper, as I said before, like I've recorded properly. The show is called Just an Insight. I like to take my guests back to their their roots and their origins, so to say. So, when did you kind of first sort of discover alternative music? When did you sort of start dabbling into sort of the the harder side of music, so to say? Oh wow. Um, well, I I would say I gr- I grew up outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, right? And um, you know, uh, and where I grew up, like, wasn't. It wasn't the nicest uh, place, you know. Um, and uh, from a very early age, I just felt apart from everyone, you know. I felt, you know, anxious and afraid um, constantly. Mm. And um, I mean, I I vividly remember in um, in second grade hearing. Uh, uh, hearing Bon Jovi's New Jersey right. and for, for some reason be, and Europe's final countdown and for some reason that that gave me a, a reprieve from my anxiety Okay. Um, and so I my mother got me those on tape and then uh, I'd say 1990, 1992 1991, 92 I was just a, a lonely kid and I had started watching MTV um, pretty much constantly. It was like my only companion. Yeah. And uh, I uh, I discovered the Headbangers Ball in like oh, nice. you know, towards towards the end of 1991. And from that point until it was canceled in '94, early '95, and turned into Super Rock, and then went off. I I didn't miss a single ball. Oh wow! I, uh, I either stayed up or I recorded it. And, um, you know, I felt through the things that I was seeing there, um, I, I no longer just felt reprieve. I felt understood. Yeah. Um, 
I felt like I, I oddly enough I felt like Ricky Rackman who was the host at the time was like my friend <laughs> um, and, and you know like I I truly thought that like you know like Slayer and Carcass and uh, you know um, whatever whatever else like like got me yeah um, and uh, you know um, I started buying buying those tapes riding my bike to our local cd shop and um you know just spending whatever cent i had on music um and there was a segment on the headbangers ball called enter the pit that aired from 2 a.m to 2 30 a.m and it was only on there for a couple of months it wasn't very popular but it was when it was the half hour that they allotted to like what they consider to be extreme metal right and oddly enough that's where I heard the Cro-Mags and Agnostic Front for okay. the first time and uh, and at the time like you know I, I just thought of that as short-haired metal you know, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. you know they, had, they had a few live videos and that, that they would put up um, uh, I think there was a live video for um for blind justice and I forget what the Cro-Max video was uh, but um, but yeah I I went and I uh, picked up uh, I picked up whatever records I could find I um, went and picked up Victim in Pain went and picked up uh, Age of Quarrel Best Wishes on a profile records used to do these uh, these CDs where like they would do two records on one right and uh, um one like one half was um, uh, was at uh, Age of Quarrel, and the other half was Best Wishes. That's sick. Yeah, the juxtaposition uh, was just so wild because you know I had at this one end this you know very like feral like like heavy knuckle draggy like cathartic. Um, Tool, like bludgeoning tool yeah um, that at the time I still thought of as metal and then on the other end it like sounded like corrosion of conformity that after after COC had done the uh, the crossover I was like yeah that's cool too so I I was I'm grateful that I came into it like that because like I never I never questioned like what was like the better chromax uh, as a kid um I, I just thought of it as the Chromax. Yeah. Um, and I thought of them as short-haired metal. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't until... Um, it wasn't until uh, 94, when Sick of It All, Scratch the Surface came out, right. that they got... They were interviewed on, on the Headbangers Ball. Uh, and it's kind of, at this time, I have no fucking friends. Um, nobody's walking me through this shit. I think it's all metal. Yeah, and it's the first time that the word hardcore got attached to um, to uh, the, the kind of music that I, I, I was listening to and gravitating towards. And um, you know, at that point, I, my life just completely changed. You know, yeah. um, I I started like just picking up whatever I could like I I became familiar with 
the term New York hardcore and then New York hardcore is a genre and then it's me back at the CD store no longer buying the death metal records but fucking you know picking up picking up Leeway picking up fucking you know Warzone uh, the, the abused uh, like uh, Life's Blood all, all this all this shit yeah and uh, you know uh, like judge and like my my world just fucking cracked open yeah and um it's it's never it's never been the same since Um, (laughs) yeah like like you know from that point on you know it's it's a very fucking strange trajectory because i've always just been curious and i i would say that you know my my roots come from you know heavy metal um and then that turns into death metal, and that turns into hardcore. And then from, I, if you're to fuck, if you're gun to my head, like to ask me how I identify musically, I'm always going to be a hardcore kid. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it it truly saved my life. Um, you know, I started going to shows. Uh, I fell into a really vibrant community. Uh, it the 1990s in Philadelphia and uh, you know it's shaped who I am today yeah Um, just before we go any further I have to ask now because you've brought it up the current Chromag situation what's your take on it Uh, I think they're I think they're all ridiculous (laughs) Um, uh, you know um, I I think of them as entirely different beasts um, and musically I think that they occupy a different space. Um, I don't care about the fucking name thing. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, fact is, like Paris wrote all of the riffs anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and and like you, you don't see him speaking up all that much. Um, so yeah, you've got these two knuckleheads kind of going back and forth. But you know, fact is, like these are two guys in their like you know mid fifties who have lived very intense lives and who have suffered a tremendous amount of trauma and like in many ways like what they have is this like this totem name you know yeah, yeah. Har- Harley's tried to do other things John's tried to do, John tried to do fucking uh, that both world band after the Chromax and like you know it just I don't know. To me, it's. I get where Harley's coming from. I think he might have taken it a little far, but like, yeah, Chromax JM. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, <laughs> like I, I, I'll, I'll still know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Harley's like Chromax. I mean, I guess it's gonna take a little of getting used to. But what the fuck doesn't take getting used? Yeah, that's like, true. I, uh, I wish them. I wish them all the best, and I wish them happiness and healing uh, across the board. Yeah. Well, if we get back to, to you, Michael, obviously. So, um, when did you sort of growing up? Were you kind of in a musical family, or like when did you sort of just start discovering wanting to play music yourself? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I was at the time the only person in my family who was even remotely interested in music um my you know like my father was like 
wasn't around and uh, he was um, you know he, he, he left when I was when I was younger and mm. I guess he I guess he he liked you know stuff like Rush and uh, I, I guess would kind of dabble into Black Sabbath occasionally but like in a very passive way yeah um, you know I remember being in his car um, like when he'd get me on weekends and occasionally hearing hearing that or hearing like the police's SOS whatever and my mother my mother couldn't have given it shit <laughs> uh, my my mother was listening fucking Steve Winwood and Billy Joel and like whatever was on like the adult contemporary station in yeah. 1986 which like you know I've come around to a lot of stuff but like a lot of that like Steve Winwood's still fucking grim man um, <laughs> and um, like while my palate is broad and it's not it's not there yet yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, but like yeah you know um no one in my family was really into it it's all background shit for all of them yeah um with the exception of my i have a younger cousin who is in his early 20s now and in his teens he discovered he discovered like the bad brains right and, uh it, it like he uh he lived in a different state than I did, um, and like one day we were at a family gathering, and he's, you know, asking me about about the bad brains and void, and uh, I'm, I'm just completely taken aback. There's this like you know, like teenage kid that is in my family that I could identify with. Yeah, um, but we're really it, um, and I I don't know. Most people that I know who who kind of dedicate themselves to music have some kind of of gateway to that, and like I, I really fucking didn't. Yeah, it, 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 it was literally just like I'm a lonely asshole kid watching MTV, and uh, and it was the only release I could get, and I I guess a lot of it kind of came through. You know, I tried playing guitar and I just I just couldn't do it um, tried playing bass I couldn't do it I can't make my my hands and my mind work together oh, I'm, uh, I'm the exact same like, I've tried yeah. it just can't do it <laughs> it's it's horrible I, I found workarounds in my in my older age with uh, with sequencers and the such but you know at the time it was it was horrible but I think part of it was like I you know, I knew kind of the relief that I would get, like after like a very intense like screaming argument yeah. or a very intense like cry, and I just wanted to be in a band, and I felt I got to play in a band uh, for for a little bit in uh, uh, sophomore junior year in high school with some people, and um, you know we had. I was one of two singers. It was, you know, that uh, unfortunate point of time in the 1990s where everybody thought that was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and um, I just felt, I, I felt relief. You know, yeah. I felt like, I felt like I had gone through, um, like, a shedding of dead weight every time I did it. Um, and so, it was that, and it's like I, it was really truly like a 
a an unburdening uh, coupled with a high that I just never stopped chasing. Mm. So then, in terms of you, you mentioned sort of like discovering hardcore and, and going to shows. And so, what was the kind of scene like in in Philadelphia? Like, was was there quite a sort of a thriving scene when you you started going to shows? Very much so. Um, it was. It, I've I've heard about you know lots of local scenes at the point in time that um, that I grew up in. And you know, it's every city had their had their DIY venue, yeah. had their bands, whatever. Um, Philadelphia had this place called Stalag Thirteen in on Thirty Eighth and Lancaster in uh, West Philly, and it was um, it was like smack dab in the middle of like a, uh, a Section Eight uh, low income area. Um, it was this. Uh, but like on the cusp of Drexel University, but it was a time where like gentrification from that end wasn't even thought of. It mm. was like it was this. There was a, a a very pronounced barrier, and you know we were <laughs> we were pretty much the only white people uh, around, and um, we were welcomed by the neighborhood. Um, immensely and uh, we became a part of the neighborhood fabric this place it was a sh- like a shitty warehouse like you, you you literally like went to the bathroom like on a hole in the floor uh, <laughs> eventually like a half pipe got built in the back um, but my god like there was a show every night of the week oh wow and it was the people who ran the venue um, uh, the, uh, the main ones were uh, these guys Tony Pointless and Andrew Martini uh, Tony uh, sang for that band Rambo uh, okay. and, uh, Andrew plays bass for Lip Wrist he used to play in uh, Kill the Man Who Questions oh, and, uh, a, a number of other of, of other bands uh, and uh, they just they kept the place running um and you know, it wouldn't be like on an average fucking night you would be seeing like, you know, like Code Thirteen and Crudos, like just like, like like hey, that's like a Tuesday, you know, <laughs> or um, you know, uh, or and like you know, Dystopia is like you know this kind of like random Thursday and the Pale Nazarenes on Friday, and it's just like fucking wild yeah um, and uh, you know we we were really fortunate and then a, a lot of bands came from Stalag 13 uh, the, the more notable ones being um, uh, being Lamb of God and the Dillinger Escape Plan right uh, they came directly out of that scene Lamb of God used to be called Burn the Priest and they would travel up from Virginia <sighs> twice a month to play Stalag and eventually they caught on they got like they were they were huge with us but they nobody else seemed to really give a shit yeah but they uh they got signed to Metal Blade Metal Blade were like yeah that that name's a little harsh Uh, can you change it they changed it to Lamb of God and you know (laughs) God bless them Um, (laughs) and uh 
<laughs> and then, you know, the Dillinger escape plan. Um, there were a bunch of shitheads from South Jersey to play Stalag and then, like, you know, the Bristol Skate Park and, like, all these, like, just, like, shitty basements, but, like, mainly fucking Stalag. Um, and, uh, uh, after uh, their bass player Adam uh, was uh, uh, was uh, was paralyzed in an, in an accident, mm. um, a uh, a guy from my hometown, Liam uh, uh, Liam Wilson, uh, started playing bass for them. And my hometown uh, it was attached to West Philadelphia. It was close by, but not quite Philly. Right, and, and we had like. We just had like not so bands, um, you know, bands that would, like bands that would fight each other on stage, oh, God. bands that would like you know like light themselves on fire, like <laughs> it, it was just, and that like and that's just like what I came up with. Yeah, yeah. The fucking but here's where shit gets really weird. Uh, so Philly at the time had you know a, a, a very vibrant. Um, like crust, uh, hardcore, riot girl, emo, like what have you, like under the punk umbrella. Yeah. Um, like it, it was there. And uh, unfortunately, it would all collide sometimes. So Philly is known to be a violent city. Um, and uh, I never really so much thought of it as such it's just all I knew you know? yeah. I, I grew up there I didn't travel much um, but you know it wouldn't be uncommon for you know more uh, more kind of uh, jock oriented or more like kind of like tough guy oriented hardcore guys to come to like emo or crust shows and wind up just like beating the shit out of everyone um you know, it wouldn't be uncommon for people to pull guns. It wouldn't be uncommon for people to take bottles over people's heads. Um, you know, um, I, I I saw somebody get hit with a fire extinguisher, extinguisher, extinguisher once. I saw, um, I was across the street when uh, some, like, tougher, hard, tough guy hardcore kid shot a dog outside. Oh, my God. Outside of a coalesce show, uh, because he got in a fight with a crust, like some crust kid, um, and uh, yeah, um, and then like you would go to these other places like that weren't like the DIY venue. Um, you'd go to like the Trocadero Theater, and it would be more like large scale hardcore. Like, yeah, you know, that's where or that's where you go see Sick of It All. Uh, that's where you would see the Chromax and. Uh, Man, the shit that would fucking happen there. Um, like, you know, once, like, I, I was at some Earth Crisis show and a kid got shot and killed right outside. Oh my god. And then, and then the week later, there was a show in Camden, New Jersey, and uh, the, the guy who, the, it was a Nazi skinhead who shot the kid, and that guy showed up to this, uh, this floor punch Candiria breakdown show in uh, in Camden, and uh, he got chased out and uh, beaten like with with actual branches uh, pulled from tr- 
trees in like you know uh, like the, I I wouldn't be surprised if that guy never walked again. Yeah. Um, and to me, this was like this was all just fucking normal, you know, like <laughs> people getting people getting stabbed, getting hit with brass knuckles, you know, like um, you know, there's this band, Bad Luck Thirteen, Riot Extravaganza from Northeast Philly, and uh, you know they would play these halls and like back when they first started, they were really kind of getting noted um they um like they used to be in this band called snail trail that kind of was doing a Gigi allen thing i was gonna Bad say luck. is this the band that like they used to like throw literally throw trash cans during their sets and stuff yes yeah it's when it started out it was much worse okay when it started out it was like it was baseball bats wrapped in bad barbed wire on fire People were actually getting hit with it. Uh, it was people getting getting hit with uh, with brass knuckles. It was people getting hit with um, like with with steel chairs. Um, people getting hit with because uh, they were wrestling themed. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there were these giant ladders that you know people would jump off on to other people and just. It was like fucking bloodbath, and they would lock the doors to these halls, and people would just fight. It, it was uh, it, it was absurd, <laughs> uh, but but there was this kind of like known thing. It's like, well, if you don't want to be a part of that, like you don't go to a bad luck show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like we knew that line, um, and you know that wasn't for everyone. Where it got really bad was when people from those shows would start going to like Texas is the reason get up kids shows yeah, yeah. Um, and you know like I a good friend of mine was like hit over the head multiple times with a brick outside of a get up kids show oh, Jesus. like that's you know like yeah that's, that's not cool um, but to me that was fucking that, that all seemed like normal because it was the only thing I knew again yeah yeah um and then I moved to New York um, in the early 2000s, like shortly after 9/11, and uh, I, I, I just needed to get—I needed to change the pace. I needed to get out of Dodge. And yeah. I developed a, a nasty drug problem, and like I, um, I, I needed to change my life. And so moved to New York, and like it, it was New York. You'd hear all this shit about. You know, CB's Sunday matinees and, uh, you know, Coney Allen High shows, uh, Wetlands shows. And I, I went to some of those shows in the 90s because it was a close, uh, it was like a close bus ride. Yeah. They all, seemed, they all seemed pretty tame. But, you know, I figured I was just kind of going on off days. Moved to New York and it's like, no, man, like nobody's fighting. Yeah. Nobody's <laughs> getting, like, like if you, if you stick, you go to fucking jail. Um, and it was at a period of time where, you know, real estate speculators were buying up all of this shit and, um, you know, people were, were just starting to get pushed out of their neighborhoods. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, for a while it seemed fun. Like, oh yeah, like we can kind of do like, we could have parties on rooftops and, uh, you know, we can, you know, kind of like, 
buy drugs in like a somewhat open air market but um, as long as like you kind of are wise with the cops and the cops definitely don't tolerate any kind of violence uh, because violence makes the neighborhood unappealing yeah um, and New York was just fucking calm and then I'd start you know traveling a little bit more and you know no other fucking place with the exception of maybe Boston um, no, definitely Boston. Um, <laughs> had this kind of like fight or flight mindset that yeah. um, that Philadelphia had, like where it was just like you were in constantly on guard. Yeah, um, and you know the uh, the cultural makeup of both of those cities are pre- pretty similar, and so it, it makes a lot of sense. You mm. know, like we're all coming from like you know not so good homes uh like there's lots of fucking you know lots of bad shit happening uh left and right and you know you you discover hardcore and uh you know you get relief and unfortunately there's a lot of like the abused becomes the abuser Mm. uh in that where like you know when you ever see a bully chances are they're getting shit kicked out of oh, the yeah, yeah. Um, and that was taken you know that would get taken into a madball show and uh, like I have a lot of empathy for that um, you know I I was involved in my fair share of uh, of scrapes at the time and uh, I was no angel mm. and I've spent I've spent a, a lot of time um, kind of reflecting on what what got me there yeah um, and um, and I think it's the thing that brings a lot of people into hardcore, um, and that's like isolation, loneliness, varying kinds of abuse. Um, you find uh, you find a community, and you know sometimes like you, some people like just hold it, brace it, and like do something with it. Other people are like, okay, cool. Well, I. I now, for the first time in my life, have a degree of power, and they exert that on those um, more susceptible mm. uh, to um, to attack. And it's all just fucking broken people. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, um, I'm on, I, I'm in my late thirties, um, so I've uh, spent a lot of time at the fucking therapist's office mm. kind of going, going through this shit and uh, you know uh, turns out I'm not the only damaged one <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and just I just want to quickly obviously if, if you're not comfortable about talking about it then that's obviously fine but you obviously mentioned having issues with, with drugs and kind of the the sort of surroundings that you were in in, in Philadelphia so obviously it's great to hear that obviously moving to New York was that kind of like that outlet that kind of put you back on the, the straight and narrow so to say but do you feel that because you were in that sort of Philadelphia bubble that, that you didn't know anything else and that's what kind of led you down that dark path in the first place nah um, <laughs> I you know um, I'm, a, I'm a recovering addict alcoholic I, um, I don't have a problem identifying that yeah. way um, I've been clean and sober for the, uh, for like nine and a half years now um, but you know I come from a long I'm an Irish Catholic guy and 
long line of junkies and alcoholics. Uh, don't think that's necessarily what made me an alcoholic. Mm. Fact is, like when I had my first real drink, I felt relief. I felt right. the same kind of a similar kind of relief as I did fucking first time I ever heard Seasons in the Abyss. Mm. You know, like it was beauty, and I wanted. To, I chased that kind of relief um, for a long time and turned into other things. And for a while, it worked. Um, and uh, then one day, you know, it stopped working. And I uh, started kind of doing monstrous things um, and things that I'm not proud of. Uh, I became a person that I uh, I wasn't proud of. Uh, I got. I got very sick and everything just kind of became about maintenance. Uh, moved to New York, tried to get clean. It didn't work. Uh, you know, I guess what, like you can find drugs and alcohol in New York. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, within a month I was like, you know, back doing the same shit, if not more. Um, and you know, I, I could have moved to the North fucking pole yeah. and found, um, some uh, some indigenous person who had <laughs> um, who had blended some kind of concoction and uh, you know uh, that's it's just in my makeup yeah um, finally you know things I tried to get clean for years tried to get sober for years um, and a lot of really terrible things happened um, that people around me were responsible for and that I was responsible for and like uh, I uh, and I was just I was gray and I was bleeding out of places that you should bleed out of mm. and, uh, and I couldn't get uh, it, drugs and alcohol no longer worked like I couldn't get high yeah. um, or I couldn't get drunk either that or I would drink like a handle of whiskey and fucking feel nothing and when I say a handle I mean a fucking handle there are mm. people who can confirm, confirm this um, or I would have like a beer and be like blotto shit faced you know like, <laughs> yeah. you, you, I never knew what was going to happen when I picked up a drink um, I played in this band and the uh, the band uh, was around for a few years we did moderately well we had a horrible breakup um after it came out that our drummer um had done some uh, some some terrible things that mm. like admittedly i had known about at the time i just didn't think it was a big deal yeah um and i, I and that's you know one of the greatest regrets of my life is thinking that you know um not putting more not putting any thought uh, or consideration into the kind of people that I was surrounding myself with and bringing yeah. around and putting other people in danger. Uh, but the band was uh, centered around drug and alcohol abuse, uh, and I was by far the worst one. After that band broke up um, on in a really spectacular fireball of shit feels <laughs> yeah. uh, um it was awful i wound up um i i, I wound up in uh, a dual diagnosis uh, type situation and i lost most of my friends
friends. Uh, most of my family didn't want to talk to me. And when I got out, I had nowhere to go. Mm. And so I had to start over. Um, and, you know, fortunately enough, like, that was like the worst time of my life. Um, and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I, I, I felt like I was about to explode at all times. Um, I felt like everyone was out to get me. Um, and eventually it, um, that dissipated and I'm so grateful that I went through it now, you know? Yeah. Um, cause to me, like it doesn't, drugs and alcohol, like it doesn't matter your environment, you know, it is very much, a, it's a physical allergy to me. When I take a drink, it triggers, uh, it triggers a craving and, uh, I don't know what's going to happen after the first one. And the only way that you're going to get somebody like me to stop fucking around with that is if there's, if they're just spiritually and emotionally decimated. Yeah. Uh, if they have, if they have any more rungs to go falling down, like, what's the point? Like, if everything's going okay, if I'm still getting away with all of my shit, then why the fuck would I need to get better? Um, like, I'm just floating through. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, that's the, the worst time of my life wound up being the best thing that ever happened. Mm. Um, and I am, um, I'm forever grateful for it. Well, if we turn back to, to the music now, so you've obviously sure. mentioned a, a couple of bands that you've, you've sort of been part of, but what would you say was kind of like the first band that you, you sort of dabbled in that kind of had some modicum of, of success that you kind of started to find your voice? That was, uh, that was definitely Trump driver. Um, and for a lot of people that's still like the band that I'm known from, um, I, uh, you know, I started that with, uh, my friend, uh, Christy Green, um, and, uh, drummer, uh, by the name of Jeremy Villalobos, who was in a band called Wives, um, before that, um, he got kicked out of Wives, uh, and moved to, uh, the East Coast, Wives were a West Coast band, they later turned into No Age, um, and, uh, you know, the whole whole idea around it was just like rampant filth uh, <laughs> right. I I had and it was it, it was a band born out of like pure resentment uh, my best friend is this guy named John Sharkey who uh, plays in the, played in this band called Clock Cleaner at the time who uh, had uh, a degree of success and I was so fucking jealous mm. uh, Pissed Jeans were doing well and like I had some friends in that band and I was just like I was just a useless fuck up um, I'd keep on trying to start bands and nobody people would just fucking laugh at me you know um, but these these two people uh, were willing to do it and you know our our brand was chaos yeah. we, uh, we and we wound up you know we'd play and I'd get in a fight and like you know, it would like our, our guitar player played through these like two full stacks, and like you know, she was this like she looked like this like demure long young woman, but she was like vicious. Yeah, and 
drummer, like, you know, it was, it was intense. And that band developed kind of like a cult following uh, pretty early on. And then, you know, we were together for like two and a half, three years. And mm. we started to have like a real like degree of success. Um, then, you know, things happened with our drummer. And like, you know, I'll make this long short, but like it should be addressed. Our drummer had been accused of sexual assault. Right. Um, and, you know, our, the guitar player and I found out about that like a couple months into the band. And we, you know, not to be like, ooh, times were different, but like, yeah, yeah. you know, it was, um, he, um, uh, I heard this like, you know, secondhand and he denied it up and down. He had like a story to back up and like, we wanted to believe him. Yeah. Um, and so we, we just said like, okay, yeah, you know, take your word for it. Um, you know, like you're our friend, we believe you. We, we're not hearing this from anybody who was immediately involved. Um, and we just, we just ignored it. And then, you know, a couple of years later when, right as we're about to have this like crazy record uh, come out um, and like, you know, right as we we're starting like selling out venues and like doing really well, um, I, I start to get inklings that, uh, you know, that, that he might get called out. And, you know, after a point in time, like I talked to some people from back where the guy was from and I, you know, my mind changed uh, mm. in a lot of ways. And, you know, we, um, we got called out and it was very intense. Um, and, um, you know, I quit the band. Uh, you know, the other two um, kind of, you know, kind kind of tried to soldier on for a, a second, but I think that collapsed uh, rather quickly after the fact. And uh, you know that, but like by that point, it was like you know, I had gone from being this fucking like you know total joke that nobody really wanted anything to do with, other than as a clown to laugh at. Yeah. To, uh, you know still highly dysfunctional but like um you know i people regarded me as like a, a decent front man yeah you uh, had like a bit of a reputation person. behind you sort of thing yeah um and that was fucking you know strange um and uh you know i uh spent a year fucking getting getting my head together um, and trying to pick up the pieces of my life um, before I started playing with uh, this band uh, called uh, called Veins uh, with uh, Mark McCoy uh, from uh, Charles Bronson and yeah. Youth and all that stuff and uh, a bunch of other friends and you know that was that, that was my read introduction mm. um but yeah that's you know more or less my contemporary origin yeah uh you know within the past 
in like the past 15 years or so. Hmm. And obviously I know sort of stylistically, obviously bands are very sort of different and things, but one thing that is very prominent in, in your work with Uniform is your voice is quite unique in, in its senses. It's not necessarily a scream, it's not necessarily a shout. Obviously I know that you, there's effects in there as well, but when did you kind of first discover that you could use your your voice as a as a almost a different instrument rather than just being there to shout and scream so to say it's funny because i still i still kind of haven't realized that um, <laughs> I, I like my when i was a kid and tried playing in hardcore bands i would i would attempt to do like a roger murray staccato or um or like you know like a JJ kind of like Yelp yeah. or um, or like you know kind of like a thicker like you know like bellowy like Mike Judge type uh, type yell um, and I just I just couldn't like it was this fucking uh, like obnoxious like 12 year old voice just came out <laughs> yeah. and, um, and it like it's still there um, but um you know, it, it's just the way that I I yell. Um, at at some point, I kind of figured out how to turn that yell into like a bit of a scream. Yeah. Um, and I was doing, um, I, you know, I, I was uh, kind of trying to do uh, uh, like a John Brandon negative approach type thing, right? For, or not, not negative approach, laughing hyenas uh, type thing uh, for a while and that worked and then um you know over time i got you know i've always been into industrial music as well uh, on top of all of this mm. uh, and dance music uh, i am I'm, I'm a sucker for electronic music and always have been um and i got into harsher electronic music and uh you know power electronics and uh the uh uh, the group White House uh, and their whole delivery was um, kind of similar to um, almost I don't want to say drill sergeant uh, it's more caustic than that they shout and articulate very clear cutting sentences right. uh, and they're just vitriolic they're heinous they're spiteful they're um, and like you get that emotion through it, it's more intense than any scream is right these these two people just pointing and yelling at you and uh, I wanted to mimic that uh, so I think that you know I'm, I started doing something between a William Bennett Philip, Philip Best uh, White House yell yeah um and a john brandon type scream and uh you know i for years never had much control of my voice it was just go as loud as you can as hard <laughs> yeah. as you can. and just recently have i started to do exercises um uh, that have uh, allowed me to have far more control yeah um, and uh, that's it's paid off enormously. I'm not losing my voice anymore. <laughs> yeah. uh, I finally have like a little bit of definition. Sometimes uh, 
I'm just thrilled that it, it no longer. I, I no longer feel like I'm going to like like my throat is bleeding after yeah, every yeah. show. Uh, only sometimes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you and you briefly touched upon there. Obviously, that you've always kind of had a leading towards sort of like dance and uh, in industrial music and stuff. So I was going to ask, like, how did the kind of evolution from sort of being a hardcore kid to sort of more of the sound what we hear with uniform come or has it always kind of just been there underlaying and it's just now more a bit pronounced um in drunk driver it was uh it was there a little bit uh you know we were pretty influenced by that band big black uh as far as uniform went the we started out as a duo and the other guy uh that i was um that i play with um he produced all of the drunk driver stuff and we right, were okay. closely aligned um and when we started uniform we just we used the drum machine just because we didn't want to deal with a fucking drummer like, <laughs> like like that like that was it there was like no greater um train of thought to that um and i i had played in this uh, industrial ebm band for a little while in, in between um, in between Drunk Driver and Uniform that I quit uh, again kind of like under duress uh, like rough circumstances they found out that uh, you know some of the guys that I was play, that I was playing with were politically dubious in ways that I didn't know they were politically dubious right. and so I uh I cut that fucking cord real hard. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, and, uh, whatever to, to all of them. Yeah. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, I had learned a bit about, you know, utilizing drum machines and samplers and the such. Um, so we were just intending to do, like, again, like a heavy noise rock group, uh, but just keep it the two of us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, just with the nature of drum machines, like it's never, it's never going to sound like an organic live drummer. And so we just, we kind of embraced that. We added a bass synth that we could send, um, we could send sequences to, um, to kind of, to follow the guitar, just fill it out. You know, it just, sounded nasty um but like you know while it sounded nasty like admittedly at first like sounded fucking bad um like we there was a pretty steep learning curve in in what we did we fell on our face pretty hard for a long time um before we before we got our sea legs um our first show we uh we brought uh, we brought our own PA that we um, that we doubled with the club's PA, and uh, within within five minutes, our PA actually like physically caught fire. Oh no! <laughs> um, and it was, I think this is our first show with just like flames going everywhere, which like sounds cool, right? Like, <laughs> but trust me, it wasn't. We were playing poorly, and then our shit caught on fire. It was oh, like no. really demoralizing. Um, and then you know we we had this we had this crazy setup that 
often we would plug in and we would short out the stages that we would play. Like you know, we'd be mid song and then all the power would just go out. Um, and again, like sounds cool. Like, you know, like, Oh, you're, you're, you're so heavy that you're, you're playing so hard. Yeah. And yeah. All, shit. It fucking sucks. Like you're, it, it, it's embarrassing. It's like, you know, at the time I'm like a 35 year old man and I fucking <sighs> like, I'm in a room playing to like a bunch of kids and they're just seeing me fail. I just <laughs> yeah. felt this fucking sense, this, this sense of failure. Um, but along with that, like I've always kind of felt that like when you play, you're either going to, it's either going to be okay or it's not. Yeah. And if you're going to fail at something, fucking fail spectacularly. Like, just fucking own it. And so, we, we kept on fucking falling on our faces, but, like, playing through it. You yeah. Know? And eventually, we came up with a system that worked. Um, and, you know, uniforms taken on a lot of... It, it's been a constant evolution. You know, we now play with with live drums and, uh, and triggers uh, to kind of keep the electronic feel to that. Um, with our with our next record, um, that's th- there's going to be a greater emphasis on synthesizers. Um, and uh, you know, I, I'm interested to see where everything goes mm. um, because, uh, like, while I I have like you know a loose sketch in my head, and Ben has a loose sketch in his head. Um, we never really know what anything is going to sound like until yeah. we start making it. We've been start. We continue to bang our head on it for months, and then get to step back. Like it's going to be interesting. Mm. Well, you kind of answered my question, so I was going to ask how you met Ben, but you've already explained that. But so when you were sort of I guess hashing out the idea of, of uniform was there kind of a consensus of, of what it wanted to sound like in those kind of embryonic stages or was it just get the two of you together and make some noise essentially I mean there was a little bit um, we kind of wanted to do like a down tuned big black right. uh, so you know uh, Ben tunes to drop C um, and uh you know, we were just kind of writing these, like, these, like, heavier punk songs. Uh, but early on, like, we weren't good at editing. Uh, so, you know, this whole thing that, you know, we're, like, you know, we meant to sound like Big Black just sounded like a Godflesh knockoff. And, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and we're like, okay, you know, we might as well just wear that. Fine. We sound like Godflesh, I guess. Cool. But we didn't know how to how to edit so we wrote these fucking like 10 minute long songs uh and they were just like two parts and they were fucking excruciating they were excruciating to play they sure they were excruciating to listen to and when i say excruciating i don't mean as in like you know like oh this is you know like fucking intense extreme music i mean it was bad like, <laughs> yeah. just really bad um but you know with every subsequent 
writing session, release session, we we develop a little more. Yeah. And uniform, I think what started out like just meant to be a noise rock band with two ding dongs who didn't want to deal with anybody else um, is you know has become kind of this growing organism um, and I don't know how to define our our sound uh, I don't I don't care what, what our sound <laughs> yeah. is you know like um, and uh, you know I don't know what it's going to sound like tomorrow um, but I, I know it's all on a steady trajectory yeah. and uh, I'm I'm grateful to get to do it and you mentioned sort of earlier that kind of now the, the sort of the age that you're at and with kind of like the life experience that you've had that you're kind of reflecting on a, on a lot of things. So has Uniform kind of been an outlet for that kind of reflective stage of, of your life? And has, have you kind of used that to sort of formulate lyrics? Because I've read somewhere that you're not, even though the, in the short time I've been speaking to you now, you're very open and honest with what you're talking about. Like, I read somewhere that you you kind of keep what you're writing about close to your chest. So, is that the case, or or are you trying to be a bit more open with what you're writing about? You know, that has very much been the case uh, in the past because I, you know, I have this terrible in, inherent fear of being misunderstood. Right. And so, when you know, like when we're doing something like this, like a long form talk like I feel like I can explain myself yeah of course um, but in the context of a song and like a set amount of time and amount of words I I am afraid of things coming off you know the wrong way and being taken either like as like you know vitriolic ammo for like an asshole who wants to like burn the world down and, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, uh, or like you know um, or, or something along those lines uh, and so I I really held that close to my chest as we've been writing the new record I've been more conscious about uh, about wanting to like write and articulate things more clearly and I think I'm going to start printing lyrics at some okay. point in the near future um, from this point on also a big part of my delivery in the studio is I do a lot of stream of conscious um, uh, takes and so right. a lot of it is uh, is initially ad-libbed um, and uh, you know Sometimes I don't remember exactly what I was <laughs> yeah. saying, uh, but you know, there's—I I promise you, there's words to all of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, in the future, as you know, we're trying to become more refined. Uh, I feel more comfortable uh, talking than I did. I uh, was reading an interview with uh, with uh, this. Uh, this Middle Eastern um, industrial performer uh, the other day, and you know he uh, his work is uh, very 
very heavy-handed. Mm. Um, I, I mean that in a good way. Uh, his work is very intense. Um, and in the interview, uh, he talks about how he wanted to relate what he did to hip-hop, which, you know, in hip-hop, for a large part, uh, you have these people just telling stories about their lives. Yeah. You know, it's not like, it's not the same as like a pop song. Like you, it's like these people like really trying to dictate, um, and put, put out into the ether what they're, what they're fucking going through. Um, and hearing, seeing somebody kind of articulate it like that, made me kind of analyze what I was doing. Um, and so I'm now trying to, trying to go far back mm. and I'm trying to, I'm trying to write as, as a narrative, um, um, coming up and in order for there to be a narrative, there has to be a story to follow. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, uh, things are more linear and, uh, yeah, I, I think that this, this next record, um, I, I want to discuss, you know, things that I may have touched on before, but that I haven't really thoroughly explored. Like, you know, I've done records about, you know, drugs and, you know, spirituality and poverty or like mm. whatever, but like, I haven't really, you know, talked about, you know, being a child with me- with a mental illness yeah. and like throwing into an adult with a mental illness. And, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that I want to be able to express. Um, so yeah. Yeah, childhood is very much um, in reflection, uh, reflection, and also like contrition for you know a lot of the shit that I've put people through. Yeah, um, uh, you know it's all very much a part of my identity, and it needs to be a part of the things that I write. Mm. Well, so if we kind of get on to where things are kind of going at the moment, and um, if I be be able to say my kind of first introduction of of you guys was um, Wake and Fright, and so kind of since then, obviously you've been kind of keeping tabs on what you've got you lot have been doing. Absolutely loved the Long Walk. I thought it was a fucking phenomenal record. But like since like Wake and Fright, you guys have been very kind of um, consistent in in your output in terms of like it's all quite a quick turnaround obviously the work that you're doing with the body as well is it just a case of the the way you work is just meant that there's this sort of quick turnaround in material and that you're always writing and always working so to say well you know before wake and fright we had two releases um and they in between the second release and wake and fright there was a solid year, year and a half gap yeah. in time. And it's because we really wanted to, we, we wanted to like hyper analyze what we were doing. Mm. Um, and 
you know, since then we've kind of been just going, you know, at pr- a pretty ba- breakneck pace, you know, like the long walk came out pretty quickly. Um, the body stuff came out, um, uh, like came together pretty quickly. Um, we have some other collabs in the works that are coming together rather quickly. Um, but I think for this, uh, for this next record, it's going to take a longer time as well. Um, kind of like the long walk or not the long walk, kind of like waking fright did. Yeah. Uh, we're fortunate in that, uh, Ben is a recording engineer by trade. Um, and, uh, you know, in my opinion, he's a pretty good one. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we we have access to resources that, you know, um, you know, you're like most bands don't, uh, and that allows us to to be um, more prolific with our with our output because, like, you know, it it, it doesn't take us quite as much yeah. uh, it doesn't take us you know um getting into a studio is just a matter of like going to hang out with my friend you know yeah. um but uh, you know our uh, this next record our drummer now lives in in texas and uh he and his partner recently had their first child and so that um you know that creates a bit of distance and we want to you know all do this together so our plan is to for ben and i to fly to texas um meet up with mike our drummer and take these long weekends for you know after we're back from this next tour that we're leaving for in a couple of days um just go down there a couple of times i go down there like once a month for maybe six months or so yeah. and you know really kind of lock ourselves in and um, and put together some something solid that we can then edit down and turn into something that we're, we're we can be proud of. Mm. And in terms of kind of introducing uh, sort of a live drummer, obviously you you mentioned at the start that you and Ben just obviously wanted to sort of play around with the idea of the drum machine, and it was just kind of a, a convenience sort of thing. So was it a strange element then having? A human in that space to fill sort of thing and did it take a while for, for it to click or was it something that kind of came quite naturally at first it was so fucking weird man <laughs> yeah. um, we you know we got really lucky in that our first drummer uh was uh this uh, uh our friend greg fox who um is uh, he's just the most dynamic drummer in the world, you know, he uh, is uh, quite like a beautiful, accomplished, um, just just tremendous musician. And so, oh, like you, and we could tell him what we wanted done, and yeah. he could just do it. In, like he, he could do anything. Um, so that that made it a bit easier, but. I was so used to playing on a fixed grid that I wasn't get, adjusting to the to like the flexible nature um, of our of, of that kind of live performance. It, it, it took a while, you know. Mm. We uh, we uh, I'd say that there was you know several months before 
I felt kind of truly comfortable with what we were doing. But I did know right off the bat that, like, as soon as we played with Greg, uh, we, we, we couldn't go back to just a drum machine. Yeah. Um, like, even though it took a while to get used to, it was immediately liberating. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then we started playing with Mike Sharp, um, and that added this whole other, like, beautiful, like, intense um, dynamic to, to our band. He, uh, you know, he's this just unbelievable um, punk drummer um, who's like, you know, he plays in a bunch of, a bunch of DB and hard and like hardcore bands, um, and but like his heart, like you know, comes from like electronica, okay, and cool. Rock. And so like, you know, we're we're all very much on the same page, um, and it just, yeah. Um, once once we landed, once we landed there. I kind of got used to it a little more. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, it, it took a while to get adjusted, but it's all been worth it. Um, <laughs> yeah. we, uh, we had to go back to the drum machine at the end of a tour uh, this winter because Mike had to fly home for a family emergency. And it was fine, but like, man, it just felt so fucking confined. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like and so rigid um you know it's something that we could do in a pitch but boy we'd rather not <laughs> no worries um and obviously at the moment the kind of i guess the quote-unquote scene that that you're a part of like this sort of industrial avant-garde punk scene obviously that includes yourselves the body lingua ignota uh dab majesty the list goes on sort of thing there's so many bands at the moment that are kind of thriving in that world so do you feel like and obviously all very unique but do you feel that like uniform has come around at the perfect sort of time that it just seems to fit in that world and there seems to be a thriving scene around that that kind of sound at the moment well yeah in a lot of ways um i felt i feel like we kind of found uh, like a sonic kinship uh, yeah. uh, with, with with a lot of peers um, and who are, who have been doing like just fucking tremendous work um, and I feel fortunate that we've been accepted by many of them um, but I I never want to get get too comfortable as like a part of a scene. Right. Um, if I've if I've seen one thing, seen one thing. God damn it! Uh, <laughs> but uh, the like moments uh, and like, like aesthetic moments in music come and go. Yeah. Um, and if you're ever intending on playing to a style, so that you could be a part of a like a unit of bands you know you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot and dooming yourself for failure um you know i i love all i I love the world that um that we're a part of um and 
and I, I, I respect what's going on deeply. Uh, and I think part of the beauty of what's like the world that we're in is that everybody still very much has their own sound. Yeah. It's doing their own thing. Um, so, you know, while there's like kind of this umbrella term, I feel like we, we all exist like in, in our own sonic world. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not to say that we, we don't like, you know, take influence from each other and, you know, obviously work together. Um, but yeah, the um, fact is, like this moment, it, it won't last. Yeah. You know? um, and there will be points in time where where we do well, and there will be points in time where we where we don't we're not as many people are are interested, and that has to be fine. At the end of the day you have to be making this as a means of self-expression and if like this has to be the purpose of what we do at least for me has to be exorcism Um, and I can't marry that with whatever I think someone else thinks is, is cool uh, in order to ride a wave, um, you know, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, um, scenes come and go, uh, but if you stay true to what makes you, what makes you feel good and complete, um, in, in the music that you make, like, there's never a reason to ever stop. Mm. And something that I've kind of noticed with the the progression of, of your band is, I think it's very prominent in the the new record that you're doing with with Body as well. That it kind of goes hand in hand with what you say. Like if you're not sort of happy with what you're doing musically, then you should kind of stop. But you guys always seem to, even though you keep that uniform sound, it's evolving. So to say, and one thing that I've kind of noticed creeping more and more, and I guess it kind of goes back to what you were saying is that, that it's been something that's influenced your music all your life. It's kind of an almost kind of disco dance element, to, to especially to the rhythm and the drums. But, like, with your unique voice on the top of it, it kind of gives it this really sort of dark sort of, like, layer to it. So <laughs> is is that something that you guys have talked about is kind of bringing more of because obviously the the music is quote-unquote dark and heavy but it has got an awfully uplifting sort of rhythm and beat to it so is that something that you guys have talked about um yeah it's very much uh been something that that comes up in conversation and it's something that we plan on when we go to write um is we like we want to like you know say like we're making a record and we want to have, like, you know, we have, to, we, we want to have something that harkens back to like new order. Yeah. Um, at the same time as we want it to harken back to no trend as the same time as we want it to harken back to fucking, um, 
I, I, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and like it all runs the gamut, and uh, you know we have to be careful with what we do because and we have to edit down because otherwise it's just fucking throwing spaghetti at the wall, and, <laughs> yeah. um, and that um, that that isn't great. Um, but yeah, everything that we do writing wise is uh, just like we we all write our own parts. Yeah, uh, we'll all come to each other with uh, riff, different riffs, different beats, and see kind of how we can make them work. Um, if we're making a good record, something that we feel is a good record, we're gonna throw out fucking more than three quarters of it. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, it is. It is all a matter of calculation, and part of that calculation now is like we do want to bring in more more electronics, uh, more um, more dynamics. You know, I think that you know the the last I I don't want to say too much, but kind of like the last thing that we were talking about how I would like to make the next record be like somewhere in between Violator and Soundtracks for the Blind. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe a little, maybe a little more rocking than that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but who, the, who the fuck knows? Um, that's just where we want to go. Yeah. Um, and if we kind of set that as a goal, then, you know, we, we have we have something to work with um but yeah man um uh, nothing in, in what we do <laughs> say is spontaneous yeah and you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and just before i start kind of winding things down obviously you've got to talk about the new record that you are doing with with the body um mm-hmm. one thing that i massive takeaway that i took from it was how yourself and Chip's voices kind of complement each other in the weirdest possible way, but in the best possible way. Um, so working with the body, I know obviously this is kind of like the second collab that you've done with them, but how did you kind of find fitting each other each other's elements together? And did you kind of find a synergy with your voice and Chip's, or is that just something that I've picked up on? You know, it's so strange because... The first time um, we toured together uh, and become friends and talked about doing a collab, uh, and when we did the first one, we did it all in one day. Uh, it, it was after the body finished recording. Uh, I fought against it, right? And uh, and we we used basically the scraps from that um, and kind of you know, as far as beats go. And then we kind of ad libbed a bunch of riffs and, um, and bass lines. And that was that, you know, um, it was a fly by night mission. Um, (laughs) but this one, you know, we, uh, we spent, you know, three or four days at machines with magnets. Uh, uh, Lee came with a number, a number of beats ready to go. I got there a day early and um, and programmed some some synth parts. Ben came with uh, with riffs ready, and we we pieced it all together. Uh, 
and we, you know, we were fortunate enough to come out with a number of songs that we were uh, we were excited with. Mm. As far as uh, as far as me and Chip go, um, <laughs> you know, we uh, we could have two of the most polarizing voices in the street <laughs> yeah. um, so like you know you're either gonna like you're either gonna like it or you're gonna fucking hate it <laughs> um, and like I, you know I think both Chip and I are okay with that um, but we we were just trying to be conscious of like leaving each other like spaces so it wound up being like these, like horrible duets yeah um and I don't think it was so much us being conscious of what the other's voice sounded like as like just give the other one enough uh, enough room to exist and breathe. Um, and then fortunately enough, like it, it seemed to work, um, quote unquote, work when we were <laughs> all said and done. Uh, I'm sure some people will disagree with me there, but eh, whatever, we like it. <laughs> And just finally, before I do completely wrap things up, obviously you've mentioned you're working on, on new sort of quote-unquote solo material with Uniform, obviously other collabs and stuff. We've mentioned kind of like you using the band as, as a reflective mechanism, but are there kind of other sort of themes that now, I guess, as you say, trying to be a bit more open that not necessarily personally, but maybe more sort of politically wise or more sort of globally wise that you're kind of putting upon? Or are you seeing the band more as uh, a vehicle for your personal outlet? I mean, it, it, you, you can't exist in the world um, without being a political entity. Yeah. You know, like that's, that, and that's going to seep into whatever you do, no matter what. Um, there are, like while things have gotten more reflective, I I'm trying to take stock of my my role and my place within uh, within a a larger community, right. uh, a larger physical community, a global community, um, and you know I think at you know as a like you know functional uh, white like, like you know like as a, a white male uh, a straight white male of a certain age and a certain economic background it's very important to understand where you're coming from yeah. and what and like where and how your actions have subverted and hurt others. So I I've been I live in the Bedford Stuyvesant section, but that Bedford Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, which is you know, uh, after the uh, after the Martin Luther King riots in the, the late sixties, um, became a thriving uh, na- uh, neighborhood. Um, uh, uh, and uh, you know it was a Jewish neighborhood and then it became a black neighborhood and you know people built families and businesses and communities and um, you know 
it, it, it was like a wonderful place for, you know, for people of color to raise their children and have like have their lives. And then, you know, I got priced out. I moved to, um, to Williamsburg section of Brooklyn when it was still cheap. Yeah. Um, and it was cheap because there were a bunch of Spanish people who lived around who were slowly getting priced out. And then I existed there for a couple of years. All the Spanish people got, got pushed out and then I got pushed out yeah. by the people coming from, <laughs> from a higher economic caste. So I moved to Bedford Stuyvesant and, you know, I'm one of the first handful of white faces to appear and the community are, are good to, you know, me and my partner. And, uh, you know, we, um, we, we try to be, you know, leave as small of a footprint as possible, but just by the nature of our existence here, more people who look like us start coming in. Yeah, and yeah. The coffee shops start popping up, and <laughs> yeah. the restaurants stop start popping up, and it, you know, it becomes a larger and larger footprint, and it it pushes out community business, it pushes out families, and no matter what people who look like me and have the the economic background that I have I'm never going to be able to fucking afford to live in a neighborhood that has already been gentrified um, yeah. or you know I'm always going to be the parasite and so this is something it's it's one of the more hideous facets of of you know living under capitalism mm. um, and, you know is this like inherent idea of like I take what's yours even if and it's so insidious that we don't realize that we're doing it uh, and it's set up in such a way so many times that we can't fucking help but do it like you know my partner and I have been talking about moving recently um, and you know she has a job that's, that keeps her in um, in New York uh, I can kind of go wherever at this point but we're very consciously trying to go, say like where can we afford to go where we're where we're not going to be making a negative impact yeah. on on an, an already existing community, and this is something that is working its way into into the stuff that I'm writing. Yeah. Uh, on top of that kind of reflection, I I have to, you know, I'm a child of the '90s and 2000s vice culture, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, button pusher edgelord <laughs> shit you know I'm very much a part of it you know if you look at pictures of me from 2008 there are chances are good that you're going to be seeing uh, this a, a dipshit with floppy hair who's too skinny for his own good wearing a death of June shirt with a tote top on it yeah. you know um, that's just 
where I was. And of course, there was an element of button pushing that went along with that. But with that, you know, all of that became a Trojan horse for something. It was bad to begin with, and it got even worse. Yeah. Because um, the more we kind of consciously let ourselves go and let, you know, let certain things become acceptable, played around with imagery, played around with, you know, with words. Um, we let in people who really mean that shit, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, it's something that over the past couple of years, I've been fucking beaten over the head with. Like, the fact that, like, you know, the anniversary of, uh, the two-year anniversary of Unite the Right was yesterday. And uh, fact is, like, I, people who that I used to know, like, like, you know, five, ten years ago, um, are people who were friends with people who were there. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and that is something that that I find profoundly upsetting. And that's something that, like, I need to hold, take myself into account for. And I think that many people... I think fucking should, you know, mm. um, like anti-fascism isn't so much, uh, this, you know, idea of a black block, you know, it's to me, it's being very clear about where you stand, what you stand for, what you're willing to let in and what you're not, yeah. you know? Um, and in, in that regard, you know, my my words and my deeds have have taken a large shift in in, in that direction. Yeah. So, you know, I, I I I hazard to label myself uh, politically because I. I exist as an amorphous, evolving uh, creature. Yeah. But I know what I believe in, and um, and I I know where I want to see my community um, and the world go. Mm. Um, and uh, do I necessarily think that everything's going to wind up okay? I, I absolutely don't. <laughs> yeah. Know? But like. You know, I, I I hope to you know I hope to die with my boots on. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that 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 can't help but seep into the creative work that yeah. I do. Cool. Right. Before I actually let you go, Michael, the way I like to to end these little chats is to ask my guests what their favorite song is, but with a bit of a twist. So. What is your favorite uniform song that you like to play live, and why? Oh, okay. Um, at this point, my favorite uniform song to play uh, is Transubstantiation. Nice. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it has a marching pace to it um, in in the buildup, and there's there's something about a march that 
Yeah. And then there's a large drop off. Um, and I love this. I love the sensation of a breath and then consolidating energy. Yeah. And, you know, we just like if we're doing it right, sometimes we do it right. Sometimes we don't. We're building that energy. And in the end, we get to have this massive release. Um, and that is, in a nutshell, like what, it, what I experienced playing that song on a good night is yeah. exactly why I play music. Perfect. Michael, thank you very much for, for your time. Really appreciate it. And, and appreciate you being so candid and open and honest with me as well. It's re- really, really appreciated. Thank you so much for chatting with me. This was, this was a true joy. Thank no you. worries. Thank you very much. Take care. Oh, yeah. Be well. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye. So there we have it, folks. Thanks again to Michael for having a little chat with me and being such an incredible guest on the show. Uh, as always, if you want to keep up to date with everything that Uniform are doing, you can do so by visiting all their various social media platforms. Uh, which, as always, will be linked in the description. Um, and honestly, if you get a chance to go see Uniform live, then take it. They are hands down one of the most incredible live bands I've seen in a long time. So, yeah, highly recommend going and check them out. Um, yeah, that that's it for for another week, folks. Um, we'll be back again with yeah another incredible chat next week. Um, yeah, a bit of a different one for us next week, but still in the realms of our world so I'll leave it at that I'll leave that little cherry there for you see if you can guess who next week's guest is um, but for now thank you again for stopping by the Justin Insight podcast and I'll see you soon Bye.